The following audio is from Community Bible Church in Nashville, Tennessee. For more information about our church, please visit us online at cbcnashville.org. It occurs to me I didn't introduce myself. We're supposed to do that. This is actually kind of really tough up here. Uh, I feel like introducing yourself is like a tertiary thing at best. That's a Sunday school joke for you. All right, we're going to read from 1 John 2, 1 through 11. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I am writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness, and does not know where he is going, because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Father, as we come before you this morning, I pray that you would strengthen us in just hearing your word. As I often pray, uh, I pray that you would help us to uh, hear your word with understanding, that you would help us to believe it to be true, and that we would humble ourselves under it uh, to obey you. And just thinking of the song that we just sang Father, we, de- we do need you to hold us fast. And there are just the many things that we kind of are all struggling with, the, the weights and burdens of, of life, uh, the sins that entangle us. And Father, just our, our physical weaknesses, I, I pray that you would strengthen us, strengthen me in my weakness to say only those things which uh, are in accord and agreement with your word help us as we come before uh, this last uh, sermon looking at long gospel that you would help us as we search your word to see what you command us us to do father that you would give us humble hearts that you would just allow us first and foremost to see your beauty, to see your glory, to see the love that you've poured out for us in Christ so that we can then look at the commands that you give us and hear them in the, in the tone that your son tells us that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Father, help us to have a rest that can only be found in Christ. 
strengthen us for this this morning, for this time in your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Well, this morning is a bit of a more technical kind of topic at hand. Uh, I'm going to be kind of rather than camping out in one uh, text of scripture, I'm going to be all over the place. Try, I'm going to try, though, as much as I can not to make it too complicated. Uh, I want you to be able to follow. I'm going to kind of set it up at first with kind of a kind of a picture that I hope will really help it help what we're going to look at today, just kind of settling your hearts. Um, so, you know, I trust that it will it will feed your soul and it won't be too uh, technical of a conversation. But just to kind of catch us up quickly where we're at, this is the last sermon in our mini-series on law and gospel. And as the subtitle says, it's we've kind of been considering over the last handful of weeks the role of the law in the life of the believer. And that's really kind of getting us to this place where next week we'll start our series in Deuteronomy. And I just have to say, I can't wait to be back in just a text. <laughs> there, there is something nice about kind of teaching the text that's in front of you uh, rather than more of a topical uh, sermon series. I am anxious to kind of get back into uh, just the um, first by verse, chapter by chapter uh, look at Deuteronomy. And just a, a heads up about Deuteronomy. We're not going to be, the plan is, we're not going to be in Deuteronomy for years and years. In fact, the first sermon, I'm going to cover the first three chapters. And they're just kind of briefly share my heart. We, we come together as, as Christ's body to sit under his word. And there, there can be a richness and a sweetness in kind of digging a book uh, apart verse by verse. But sometimes we lose the whole the scope of, of the text when we do that. I'm not, nothing against people who might take Deuteronomy verse more like verse by verse. But I, I think it is important for us as, as believers to, be, to sit under the totality of God's word, to hear the, the various passages of scripture, to hear both from the Old Testament and the New Testament so our, our study in Deuteronomy is going to be fairly fast. I, I think it's 16 weeks or so if we stay on pace. I can't promise that we're going to stay on pace. Uh, but, but we're going to be looking at kind of the heartbeat of Deuteronomy. It is a series of sermons by Moses. Uh, so we want to kind of uh, understand each of his sermons. But before we get too far ahead, where we're at in kind of building ourselves up through this law and gospel mini-series. We first looked at the law as it is in the covenant of works and, and felt the, the burden of the law in that regard. We, we kind of looked at the, the phrase that kind of encapsulates the law, do this and live. It's that, it's a weighty phrase because it requires you to obey perfectly, to obey personally, perfectly and perpetually the law of God. Well, Adam fell from that. Therefore, no one in our sin can ever attain that standard. And that, that left us with the, questions that, the question that the disciples asked Christ, 
who then can be saved? When Christ kind of put that burden on the, the rich young ruler, their question after that interaction was, who then can be saved? And it's an appropriate question because that's when we view the law in the context of the covenant of works, that needs to be exactly where we all end up. Who then can be saved? Well, as Christ told them, you know, what is impossible for man is possible with God. And then the next week we studied how exactly that is possible with God. And that's the idea that we are justified by faith alone, not by works. Ever since Genesis 3.15, God doesn't point us back to the law as a covenant of works to save ourselves. He actually is pointing us away from it. He's pointing us to a mediator. He's pointing us to the promised Messiah. So that is how we are justified by faith alone. We're justified by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Christ is the object of our faith. So the law, as the covenant of works says, do this and live, Christ fulfills it. He, he obeys all that was required so he can say on the cross, it is finished. And then we understand through Christ that the righteous shall live by faith. And it's important for us to understand that that phrase, the righteous shall live by faith, isn't a particularly New Testament uh, construct that's actually quoted in the New Testament from the book of Habakkuk. The righteous shall live by faith. Again, ever since Genesis 3.15, God wasn't trying to send us running toward the law to save us. He was sending us toward Christ. We ended that week with the question, it's just kind of the question that uh, this whole series is built around what then is the role of the law in the life of the believer, in the life of the Christian? Well, last week, as we looked at Romans, um, Romans 6, we considered the Christian being a new creation. And as new creations, we view the law through new, new eyes, that we no longer see the law as something that condemns us because Christ has taken the condemning power out of the law for those who are in him so that we look at the, the law through, the, through new eyes, through the eyes of our lawgiver. And God, as the lawgiver, says, as, as Paul says in Romans, that the law is holy and righteous and good. So as we looked last week, we can look at our lawgiver and see the abundance of the love that he has lavished upon us in Christ. All the abundant blessings and fulfilled promises that he has poured out upon us in Christ. And we can then, in that abundance of grace and mercy, we view his law and we say, Oh, oh how I love your law. It goes from being a curse to us, a condemning power to us, to being sweeter than honey. And that is because the position of God, our relation to him has changed. He's, we've gone from being under God as judge and rightfully so to being adopted into his household by faith in Christ to be sons and daughters of the living God so that we can look at his law and love it. So last week we left, left off with the question, what commandments should we keep? As, as Christ says in John, in John 14, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I stressed last week, our sinful nature is, is bent on reversing that, that phrase all the time by reversing the order, by trying to keep commandments to earn his favor. And that's not what 
what Jesus is saying there. Jesus is saying, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. It's a, it's a natural progression. Out of our love for our Savior, out of our lo- love for God of our, as our lawgiver, we love the things that he loves. So this sermon really is building off of that concept of understanding that our, as new creations, we not only love God, but we love his law. So we want to search his word to know how we ought to obey him, how we ought to serve him. I want to start off with a, an illustration. And I, I hope that the uh, illustration will help settle the truths that we, that we worked through today in Scripture, really understanding kind of how obeying God's commands directs us as, as a rule of life to serve him. Because there, there's a tendency to say, to, to say that the commands that we have under the new covenant are, is simply the command to love. And, and at a certain level, that's not exactly wrong. Christ sums up the, the commandments, the Ten Commandments, as to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. The love is, in a sense, the fulfillment of the law. But a lot of the times when people try to boil the kind of New Testament command down to simply love, they're stripping away God's commandments that tell us how to love and are just kind of giving a nebulous term for love. And what the difficulty is, is that we're left to, to each one of us decide how that looks, how that plays out. So the illustration this morning is, is thinking of if I had an opportunity to, to kind of throw a big, big birthday party for my wife. And she's, she's told me specifically that she wants a themed birthday party. So I asked her, well, honey, what's, what theme would you like? And she says, you know the things that I love. Okay. Well, my first thought is, I do know the things she loves. One of the things she loves is Jane Austen. And I'll, I'll admit, I've watched lots of Jane Austen with my wife, and I cry. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm weepy. Okay, I enjoy Jane Austen too, but for the, sake of, for the sake of the illustration here, I know particularly that she loves Jane Austen. So I could throw a Jane Austen theme party. It could be like an English tea party worthy of Pemberley. Is that right? No. I could do all these things to kind of bring the Jane Austen era to our home, to this location, and make it special for her. But I am super excited about something else. I think what would be better is a football-themed party. I love football. So I think it'll be really special to do a football-themed party. In fact, I'm going to go all out. I'm going to fly in, no expense spared here. I'm going to fly in some of my, my football heroes, Joe Montana and Jerry Rice, 
they're going to be there. And I'm going to have a birthday cake that looks like the Lombardi trophy. No expense spared, because I, I love my wife. And I know, I, and I love football, so you know, it should just work together so wonderfully. The difficulty is Courtney hates football. She despises football, and she's not, she's not against sports. She loves baseball. She hates football. Whenever I watch a football game, she's like, I just don't get it. So she hates football. So I throw this big football party for her. I have, I, I've flown celebrities in for it. I have the Lombardi trophy cake. Even the floor looks like a football field with all the lines and markings for everything. And she says, I hate football, Jeremy. Why would you throw me a football-themed party? And I'm like, well, honey, don't, I guess, don't they say it's the thought that counts? Isn't, isn't it enough, honey, to, to show you that I love you so much by doing this thing that I love? She's like, I love that you love it, and maybe that would be a great birthday party for you, but it's not the things that I love. Well, oftentimes that's how we, we treat God's commands. We think it's the thought, it's the thought that counts, Right? My motivation was love. But if our motivation is love and it's not in alignment with God's commands, then it falls flat. It's like a football-themed birthday party gone all out, but for someone who hates football. So as we want to know what commands to obey, how we want to please God, we need to search his word. We need to be a people who love him. And because we love him, we want to do and know the things that are pleasing to him. You see, in, in this kind of having this picture of, of love and, and boiling it down to a love that's uninformed by God's word, it's tainted by my own sinfulness. Oftentimes, the very things that I want to do to express love, whether it be to a person or to God, I define by my own standards rather than what I know is pleasing to that person or to God. How, how to serve and love my fellow man or to serve and love God. This is true both for sins of Commission or sins of omission. It's that the, the things that God prohibits should be the very things that I want to know he prohibits so I don't do those. And the things that he commands, I want to know what he commands so I can do that. It's not, again, as we've built this foundation in this series, it's not for the point of earning his favor. It can never be for the, the point of earning his favor. That's what he's been pointing us away from. Run from the covenant of works. You can't do it. It is out of that 
that childlike love and obedience to our heavenly father that we serve him, that we want to do his will. As I, I talked about in Sunday school this morning, you know, our standards are constantly changing. The world around us does shape and inform our thinking so that oftentimes if we get wrapped up in modern day thought, we might be caught up calling something that is evil good or calling something that is good evil. That's, we have to recognize that that is in, the, in our own feebleness, that that, will, that happens. So we have to ground ourselves to God's word because to love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love my neighbor as myself, that can only appropriately happen when I am humbly submitting myself to what God commands. Not, not to my thinking that's been conformed to, to culture or is making room for my sin, for what I am comfortable with. As John Owen t- talks about in his, in his book, The Mortification of Sin, he talks about we need to put to death not even the, those big sins that we see in our lives, but you need to, we need to love God so much that we are digging down and finding those, th- those sins that we have been co- become comfortable with over the decades. To God, even that comfortable sin... I want to hate it like you hate it. I want to kill it. So we want to do, as we love God and love his law, our desire needs to be to to know his law, to know the things that displease him and the things that honor him. And again, this isn't for mere external obedience, but it's, it's through faith. It's through faith pursuing these things that we begin more and more conform our thoughts, words, and deeds to his revealed will. In Ephesians 5, Paul writes, At one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of, the, of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. It should be one of those things that as believers, for all the reasons I've just listed, this illustration of this party of, of pleasing my wife by doing the things that I know please her, I, as a child who has been so loved by my heavenly father, ought to search his word so I can discern the things that are pleasing to him. So how, how do we discern what is pleasing to the Lord? Now this is where we start getting into kind of the, maybe the bit of the technical side of this sermon. And I have to, because it's the, there's the, the sake of time and just the sake of the, the sermon itself, I, I can't get into the weeds too much. So I realize there's, to a degree, I'll be speaking in generalities. 
But first, as we look and search scriptures, as we try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord, first we have to understand, and this is really going to feed us as we walk into Deuteronomy next week, we have to understand that not all laws are created equal. Not, not all laws are created equal. One of, the re- one of the reasons we know this is because as we study the word, we begin to see that as the, as the teaching unfolds and as Christ comes, certain laws are actually revoked. Think of the dietary laws, the, the, what is clean and unclean. You can turn to Leviticus 11 and start seeing a whole list of things that are clean and unclean and what, what the Israelites were allowed to eat. The laws about the, the, eating the animals that with split hooves and that chew the cud and then all, all the divisions there. Like, well, this one has, uh, the hoof isn't split, but does chew the cud, but, so that's unclean. And walking, walking through all these things, what's clean and unclean? Out of the sea, it's those things with fins and scales that we are allowed to eat. If it's a bottom dweller, you're not allowed to eat it. Certain kinds of birds you're allowed to eat, and certain kinds of birds you're not allowed to eat. Certain kinds of insects you're allowed to eat. <laughs> And certain kind of insects here, Reese is giving me a a face of like, ugh. But certain kind of insects you're not allowed to eat. These things that are clean and unclean. But then as we are reading through the Gospels, you come to this section in in Mark 7, where there's this discussion that Jesus is having uh, with the Pharisees. And they're so concerned about what is going into the body. And so he, Jesus has this this conversation with him, and he tells them, it's not what goes into your body that defiles you. It's what comes out of it. It's what comes out of your body. And Mark gives us a little parenthetical uh, doctrine. He says, hey, just in case you didn't catch it, what Jesus just did there was he declared all foods clean. You think about the Levitical priesthood and the animal sacrifices. Well, all you have to do is read Hebrews and you'll see that those are done away with. And why are they done away with? Because they were simply types and shadows of Christ. So the argument that the author of Hebrews brings up and what Paul says, I believe in Colossians, he says, you no longer need the types and shadows when the substance has come. When the substance comes, those things are done away with. We no longer need the Levitical priesthood because Christ has come as our high priest. The perfect has come. You no longer need the types and shadows. How dare you sacrifice animals anymore for the remission of sins because they could never even take away sins. They only pointed to the perfect sacrifice who would come who could take away sins. So Christ dies as our perfect sacrificial lamb for the forgiveness of our sins. So all the animal sacrifices are done away with. So we understand as we look at scripture that there are certain things, certain laws that are revoked. And we need to understand that. We need to kind of have a certain framework to understand those things. Many of us would probably be violating uh, the, the Jewish, well, we'll get to in a minute, ceremonial laws this, this morning as we're wearing clothes with mixed types of fibers. 
You know, you might have a, a blend, 50% this, 50% that. And you can't do that under the old covenant law. So certain things do change. But still, all, not all of God's law is revoked. You need to understand that not all of God's law is revoked. In Matthew 5, in his Sermon on the Mount, Christ says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not a yoda, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus warns there that there are evidently certain commandments that if we even relax those things, that if we don't teach those things, there's a judgment for that. A couple weeks ago when we were in Romans 3, looking at the justification that we have in Christ, that we come to him by faith alone, we're justified by faith alone and not by works. He ends in that chapter in verse 31, he says, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? He says, by no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. So there are certain laws that are still in effect. We don't simply turn from the Old Testament to the New Testament, and all of a sudden, all the laws that were in the Old Testament no, are no longer matter. There are certain laws that still are in effect. There's a, there's a division as we look at these things and understand that some laws are revoked and some laws seem to have an, a kind of eternal status. We understand there's a, an apparent division in the law. Some have seen this division and kind of categorized it into kind of two categories. More of the kind of reformed approach is three categories. Our confession classifies three divisions of the law, ceremonial, judicial, and moral laws. Ceremonial, judicial, and moral laws. Quickly just want to walk through the first couple, and we've already talked about some of these, but the ceremonial laws, kind of the examples of these would be like the Levitical priesthood, the sacrificial system, the dietary laws, uh, reg regulations determining what is clean and unclean, kind of all, all of these ceremonial laws. The other, the judicial laws would be Israel's civil code prescribing punishments and laws uh, of, of restitution. So this is as you're reading through the Old Testament and you see you know, details about your ox, and say your ox gets through a hole in the fence and gores another ox. Well, there's a certain restitution to pay for that. Now, if your ox escaped and your ox is a history of goring other oxes or of killing people by goring people, there's another law there of restitution. So these are the kind of the, the judicial laws, the, the punishments and, and the, the civil code that's prescribed to Israel. Well, the, the ceremonial judicial laws really regulated Israel's worship and just their everyday lives. And it's one of those things that as God gave those to the people of Israel at Sinai, 
he gave them to them to specifically differentiate, to, to kind of separate them from the Gentile nations around them so that they would be a separate people. Well, many of these things, these ceremonial and judicial laws come to an end in Christ because Christ has fulfilled them, come to an end because the, the nation of Israel as, as God's chosen people, in a sense, no longer applies. If Ephesians 2, Paul writes, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Listen, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. He's broken down that dividing wall and he says that dividing wall is set up by these various commands, these ordinances that we would call ceremonial and judicial laws. He's broken it down to bring us together. The, the kind of perfect picture of this is the issue with clean and unclean animals as Christ declared all foods clean. He gives Peter a, a wonderful example that when he is sending Peter to the Gentiles, to Cornelius's house, he gives Peter, this dream where there's this sheet is coming down out of heaven and there's all sorts of, of animals on it, unclean animals. And God says to Peter, take and eat. And Peter says, whoa, I've never eaten any unclean animal. So it keeps happening. God says, Peter, take and eat. And the whole picture there is this picture of taking, uh, of taking away these laws that once divided to show that God through Christ is forming one people. So he says, Peter, I know you see those Gentiles as unclean. I am declaring, just as I declared all foods clean, I, through, through the sacrifice of my son, am declaring all people clean. Go to the Gentiles. Don't be afraid to go into their home, to sit down with them. Still, we might consider then, okay, well, there's certain laws that are revoked. So just to help kind of speed up my, my yearly Bible reading, I'm going to go through and kind of uh, cross out all those sections because that, really, that could really help. I could just cross those things out and kind of fly through the, the important parts of Scripture. That's not what we should do. As we've now quoted it, I think, three times today, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scriptures breathed out by God and profitable. All scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So while the, the ceremonial and the judicial laws no longer bind us, they are still beneficial. They still instruct us. You want to understand exactly what Christ accomplished for us? You got to read the Old Testament. You've got to read the Old Testament. And as you see the intricacies and all the details of the, in the sacrificial system, you better understand the sacrifice of Christ. You better understand what he came and accomplished for us. You want to 
why, why do we need these things about clean and unclean if, if God has said that all things are clean? Well, it helps us to understand the holiness of God and even how he related to his people. All these things, though no, no longer binding on us, are profitable for us. Even the New Testament author, authors uh, pull from some of these laws in just understanding some common sense principles. I know this one's stuck in Sheldon's mind from a, a handful of Sunday school classes ago where Paul talks about not muzzling, not muzzling the ox. That's one of these laws. And yet Paul, in the New Testament, says don't muzzle the ox. And he uses it as a, as a principle for paying the, the preacher, for paying those who give full time to the ministry, to allow them to enjoy some of the, the fruits of their labor. So they are still profitable to us. Some of them still draw out principles of wisdom for us. They may come to the moral law. The moral law. So again, if you are walking through kind of chapter 19 of, of the London Baptist Confession on the law of God, you're going to see these distinctions. And, and I would encourage you to, to read through it because it might help you think of it in a logical order. But the moral law is a law that reflects the very nature of God. It's a law that reflects the very nature of God. If, if you have your Bibles, you can open with me to Romans. And just look at a few verses. Consider how, as, as Paul develops his argument at the beginning of Romans, what he says here. Romans 1, chapter 18, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. If you turn the page, possibly the next chapter, chapter 2, I referenced this, I believe, in the first sermon in the series. Chapter 2, verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Paul here is is speaking of this covenant of works language. He's putting the pressure of the law down on us. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So to, to an imperfect degree, the revelation here that we understand in Paul's writing is that even from the very beginning of creation, God gave the, his laws 
put his laws on our heart. Now, this was more true in a, in a kind of more full and perfect sense with Adam. Adam, before he fell, had the law of God impressed upon his heart. After Adam's sin, we're corrupted. Our, we, we talk around here about total depravity. We, we are holistically corrupted. So that even the law written on our heart is, is corrupted in the, in the way that we understand God. But Paul in his argument says that even the Gentiles, when they do the very things that God commands without having it written down for them, he says it's evident that they have the law of God. By the very nature, they have the law of God. This is, this is the moral law of God. It is something that is true from day one of creation through eternity. Because these laws reflect the very character of God. They flow from him. They represent the things that are truly pleasing to him. The moral law, then, as, we, as our confession says, and I believe the scripture makes clear, the moral law is codified at a certain point. It's, it's written down in summary form in the Ten Commandments. And scripture demonstrates the Ten Commandments is, is standing over and above the other laws. Con- consider, consider how the Ten Commandments are delivered. God wrote them with his own finger. He carved them into stone. The other laws he gave to Moses verbally, Moses to write those things down. But the Ten Commandments, this summary of the moral law, God wrote with his own finger on tablets of stone. It's those stones that contain the the commands of God that were then placed in the Ark of the Covenant under the mercy seat. If we think about divisions or distinctions in the law, something special is represented in the Ten Commandments. These are God's moral law for all humanity. Turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 31. Because this really, this idea of God carving his moral law, his moral code in summary form on the tablets of stone and and placing them into the Ark of the Covenant underneath the mercy seat. It's It's an idea that flows then through Scripture from Old Covenant to New Covenant. Jeremiah 31, beginning with verse 31, is Jeremiah's prophesying the new covenant to come. He says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. The covenant that he wrote on tablets of stone, that is, as they broke this covenant before Moses could even come down the mountain by, by making the golden calf and worshiping this golden calf as what they would call the God who rescued them out of the land of Egypt. Moses comes down and throws the tablets down, breaking them, signifying that the people had broken the covenant. 
then God would have to write the commands again. That law, verse 33, says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And this is, as we understand our, our, how we're corrupted, what Paul talks about with the Gentiles having the law in their heart is different than what this is talking about. This is talking about a, a spirit-led, spirit-driven, received by faith law of the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts as opposed to stone. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Ezekiel also talks of this new covenant language. In Ezekiel 36, 36, he says, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And as Josh read for us this morning from 1 John, understanding this helps us make sense of these words when John writes, Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment. John says, what I'm writing to you is not new. It's it's an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him, that is in Christ, and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. It's a new commandment that kind of comes to its fullness, its completion in Christ, that we understand God's commandments through Christ. And this really gets us to the heart of the matter as we transition from this short mini-series to Deuteronomy. Because as we open Deuteronomy next week, the theme that we see throughout it is the heart. Almost 50 times the heart is mentioned in Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy 30, says the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. You see in these sermons that we're about to get into in Deuteronomy, what Moses is pleading with the people is he's saying, you are coming at God's law as though Righteousness could be obtained by your works. Come to it by faith. What God wants is not mere external obedience. God wants your heart. He wants you to be so gripped with his love that you want to know the things that he says, don't do that. And you want to know the things that he says, do that. He says, it's your heart. Your heart should be gripped with a love for God and therefore a love for his law. 
love God, love his law. And when we do that, we should strive to discern what is pleasing to him. As we wrap up this mini-series, get, getting ready to head on into Deuteronomy, I just want to ask you a few challenging questions just for you to meditate upon, for you to think through. As we, I hope, truly understand the love that God has poured out upon us and therefore love him and, want, and love his law and want to do the things that are pleasing to him and not do the things that he hates. Question is, what are, what are you holding on to? What are some of the things in your life you're like, Lord, I, I know through, the, through your word that this is something that you hate. Or, Lord, I know this is something that you command me to do, but I'm just, I don't want to do that. What are those things that you're holding on to tightly that you don't want to let go of? What are those areas of your life that you haven't submitted to him? As we consider even our, our call to worship this morning from Psalm 95, understanding the greatness of our king, God is king. We are his children. We are his his subjects, so we owe him everything. Again, not to earn his favor, but because he has actually brought us into his kingdom. Well, as we move to communion, it's that opportunity for us to remember what Christ has done. Because even as I, preparing for this sermon and kind of digging into the, to the word and trying to figure out exactly how I can share just the, the right amount w- with you. Even I am convicted as I consider the things that I'm holding on to, the things that I don't want to give up, those comfortable sins. So we're always needing to look to Christ. Christ not only met all the requirements of the law and obeyed all its commands, Christ actually embodies the law. And it's only in him and through the Spirit's mediation really that anything that we do, any of our feeble obedience is even accepted to God. Because even, even the obedience and the righteousness that we offer to him out of a childlike love is still tainted with our sin. We are still feeble and weak. So we recognize that we rely on Christ. We recognize that we rely on his mediation, on his intercession, on the Spirit's mediating work in in us. So we need to always be looking to Christ. And that's what the beauty of the communion table is, is it reminds us to look to Christ. As we come to the table this morning, if you are... An unbeliever, if you just don't have your faith in Christ, whether you're trying to earn God's favor by, by your righteous works, you say, I don't need Christ, my works are enough. Or you're in that category where like, I don't need Christ because he's going to cramp 
all my fun. He's a killjoy. I want, I want to enjoy the sins that I want to enjoy. And maybe, maybe someday when I'm old enough and I'm ready, then I'll, then I'll look to Christ. Whatever, whatever the situation is, if you don't have your faith in Christ, we would ask you to allow these elements to pass you by. This is not something that we do to save ourselves. This is something that we do because we've been brought into the household of God. And as we see throughout Scripture, one of the things that God shows as a picture for us of his covenant faithfulness is he has covenant meals. And he has given us in the church a covenant meal that we sit down and enjoy this little bread and this grape juice, understanding that he has done what is required of us. He has met the requirement of the covenant to bring us into a covenant relationship with him and to have peace. As we turn toward this table, we want to celebrate what Christ has done for us. We want to enjoy what he's done for us so that we can take of these elements with hope and assurance, knowing that our salvation is not about any works that we could possibly do, but completely bound up, fulfilled in Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your law. First, that it drives us to Christ, that we see our complete inability to obey our complete inability to, to make ourselves right, to justify ourselves by works of the law. So we are forced in such a wonderful way to the foot of the cross, to the empty tomb, to look up into heaven at our, our, our ascended Savior, to find our only hope in life and death bound up completely in him. And I praise you, praise you that you give us your law as a rule of life, That instead of doing those things that seem right to us, that seem pleasing to us, the things that we enjoy, we look to your word to see the standard that you have set, to see the things that you hate, the things that you call evil and the things that you call good, those things that you love, those things that please you that even though we are weak and feeble and can't offer you perfect obedience, we still delight in it. We still delight to be able to obey you to the extent that you have enabled us to obey. We can delight in you and delight in your law. Father, I pray that as we take this Supper, communion, Father, I pray that you would truly nourish us on Christ. Help us to see in it our, our union with him, our participation in him and what he has done for us. And to know that we are hidden away in him, we are safe in him, that it's in him that we come to you and call you Father. We pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.
Thank you for listening to this audio presentation from Community Bible Church. For more information, please visit us at 6005 Edmondson Pike in Nashville, Tennessee, or online at cbcnashville.org.